0: I think you feel like you want to be taken seriously, or I want to be perceived as an adult. It's like, no, take advantage of the way you're perceived right now. People are going to be more willing to help you when they feel like you're just beginning. We're looking for people that are competitive. I want people that care about the score, that want to win. Doesn't necessarily mean everybody we hire needs to have been working in industry for 20 years, but we need to see that they have a really high ceiling. This is the Work in Sports Podcast.
1: Here's VP of Content and Engage Learning at WorkinSports.com. Brian Clapp. This is our final of the best of 2021 series. We did 41 podcast interviews this past year and a lot of great ones. You can't just narrow it down to four episodes and say, you know, these are the only good ones. It's not. These are some of our favorites, but every episode has so much value to it. So go back and listen to any of them, any of them. But let's get into our conversation with Zach Meritas. In the sports world, we are all accustomed to being led by a coach from early t-ball or youth soccer to more intense high school competitions or club teams. And then for some of us, college. We are all accustomed to the coach archetype. As I say that, your first thoughts may go to a vision of a stern-faced sideline warrior fussing and cussing at their horde of athletes. This is the common perception. Bob Knight, Lou Piniella, Mike Ditka, Bear Bryant. Notice something in that list. They are all bygones. Think for a second about the most important coaches of our era. Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Greg Popovich, Joe Madden, Cheryl Reeve. They are not the fire and brimstone types. Sure, they get upset and have human emotions, but they are teachers and leaders first. Today's successful coaches are quite different than traditional bosses you may see in the workplace. This is one place where sports are ahead of other industries. Traditional workplace bosses master a particular skill, then up-level to controlling others who are utilizing the skill. For example, a great salesperson will eventually be promoted to a sales manager. A wonderful software engineer gets promoted to managing other programmers. But successfully completing tasks, as they did as an individual contributor, is different than leading, which is why many traditional bosses can tend to be transactional versus transformational. In business, your boss may want you to give orders, a list of transactional items to complete, to work harder, to dedicate more time and effort. Successful coaches, on the other hand, teach the craft, empower, show how to work smarter and not harder, focus on technique and approach to benefit the performance, and lean heavily on the broader team mission of success. Coaches teach... Bosses tell. The Atlantic magazine highlighted the extrovert bias in corporate culture, concluding that aggressive, outspoken business leaders are more highly compensated and promoted. But the science behind this is quite clear. Empowering your direct reports in sports or in business is motivating, builds confidence, and enhances performance. Authoritarian demands being aggressive and loud may garner attention, but they don't work. These techniques don't develop cooperative and competitive teams. I lean toward Greg Popovich's view on this. He says, competitive character people don't want to be manipulated. That is what the leader that hoots and hollers is doing. They're manipulating, not coaching. Empowering athletes provides a psychological boost and a mental edge at the most important moments. When today's guest, Zach Baritas, Mm -hmm. was playing college ball at Duke, as a six foot six, two 290-pound offensive lineman, he played for four offensive coordinators, three position coaches, and two head coaches. He was exposed to different leaders and leadership styles, and from that came to his own conclusions of what it meant to be a leader in today's world. When he started Teamworks, the athlete engagement platform that is currently used by over 100 professional sports teams, 250 NCAA Division one collegiate programs and over 2 thousand division one teams. he knew to find real success and to grow his company he needed to lead like a coach, not like a boss. which includes some fire you up run through a wall moments which will emerge momentarily because here is Zach Moritas founder and CEO of teamworks and one of my personal favorite interviews from 2021. Zach, what's happening? Thanks a lot for joining me on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me, Brian. Excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's such cool things that you guys are doing as part of teamwork, so I'm just excited to have this conversation. I'm one of those people that strongly believes the best innovation comes from people that live a problem. They exist within it, and then they experience it firsthand, and and they come up with a solution. So let's start back at those days, at at your problem-facing days, I guess we could call it. Back in the early 2000s, you were an offensive lineman at Duke. What were the biggest challenges as you remember it being a student athlete? And how much do you think that's changed between that time in early 2000s versus where we are now?
0: So, you know, it's a, just kind of working at the end of the question back. I, I don't think the challenges are that different today. I think they're exacerbated. Um, so, you know, my challenge as a student athlete in 2003 was just kind of the, the quantity of what I had to do. Right. So, you know, you're, you're a full time student everything that comes with that, you know, plus the, the time spent being a full-time athlete. And, you know, it's interesting. I think it was a few years ago that the NCAA finally did what they called a, like a, a goal survey where they, they went to look at, you know, how much time are athletes actually spending, in athletically related activities. Wow. Um, And they found that, you know, I think it was for football and basketball players, the average time was 40 plus hours a week. And so it was like a full-time job while being a full-time athlete. Um, And so I think it was juggling and balancing all the different things you had to do. And so let's, you know, let's unpack. I mean, being an athlete, it means you're going to practice. It means you're working out. It means, um, you know, you're going to mandatory study hall. You're going to, you know, mandatory media interviews, you're doing autograph signings, you have physical rehabilitation if you've been injured, doctor's appointments, you're going to go to mandatory life skills uh, programming, you know, um, you might be working with a sports psychologist or behavioral psychologist. And so, you know, you have all these different things that are going on, and you have to keep it all in order. And I think today, athletes today have everything that we had back then, and they have this new added category, which has become, I think, a part of everything they do all day long, which is building a digital brand, building uh, kind of you know their digital narrative of their life and doing it across multiple platforms. I've got to be telling everybody on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok what yep. I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I feel. Um, I will say that I think for maybe an athlete of my generation, they would view that as uh, something that new that they have to learn to do. I do think that athletes today are more native to it. They grew up with it. It's kind of part of how they interact with the world by default. Um, but I think that is a big difference. Um, not only do they have to build and curate that persona, they're held accountable for it as well. Um, and there's real consequences down the road for them in terms of marketability, job opportunities, et cetera. So short answer, biggest problem, had a lot going on in all areas of my life. Today I think it's the same thing, but they have even more.
1: Yeah. We have a lot of student athletes in our audience that I guarantee are nodding their heads right now and like, uh-huh, Zach gets it. Right. And and I think you know, I hear that and I think from from our perspective and from my world of giving career advice, I have tons of student athletes come to me that are like, hey, I don't have time to do internships. I don't have ways to kind of build my brand in that regard. There's so many other things I'm doing and we try to give them strategies in that regard. But I think what you're bringing to the surface here too is just like their actual day to day is so compressed and it's so fragmented in other ways too with so many different people having a grab on their time. Before we get deeper into it, then, and before we get really deep into this conversation, give us that overview. Give us a real understanding of what Teamworks does and how you guys are going about solving a lot of these problems that face student athletes today and into the future.
0: Yeah. So let's go back to my my experience. Um, you know, in, in truth, when when you're a student athlete, even back in 2003 to today. You're going to have about 15 to 20 different professionals that are working with you in various areas of your life. So, again, you're going to have coaches, trainers, strength staff, uh, academic advisors, tutors, mentors, behavioral psychologists, sports psychologists, nutritionists, media, community relations, so on and so forth. It's crazy. It's crazy. And so you have, you know, all of those people, what they form is kind of, you know, what, what people would call the program, right? Or what we call the ecosystem of support around the athlete and that ecosystem was built and kind of their the mission of all those people in operational areas is to make every athlete and if we're talking about college athletes as successful as possible on the field court the pool uh in the classroom and then hopefully later on in life and whatever they may choose to do Mm -hmm. um when i came in that ecosystem was really in the early stages of being built um, and grown and my experience was that the sheer size and complexity of that ecosystem had grown a lot faster than the systems that supported how all those people work together, um, you know, efficiently to serve the athlete and how they actually directly connected to the athlete. So as an example, I might have one of those people that texts me information, another one that puts a piece of paper in my locker, another one that would email me, another one that would write it on a grease board, What Teamworks does, very simply, is we are an informational hub that gets implemented into these elite athletic organizations, and it becomes the way that all of those people coordinate care of the athlete, everything from Zach's schedule throughout the day to other pieces of data that we might track on Zach, his injury history, his academic history, what position he's playing, how he's graded out on the field, consolidating all that information coordinating that care but then importantly it is the single point of contact for the athlete to that program it is their kind of their digital portal to the program it's where they're going to go to figure out where they need to be next every point of the day it's where they're going to go to figure out what they should be eating it's where they're going to go to to fill out covid symptom checks i mean you name it everything that's going to happen in terms of working with that program is going to happen through TeamWorks.
1: It's fascinating. It's very robust. And what, I, what I'm what i always curious of from like a tactical standpoint, when you guys go to a D1 school and you start to pitch the services, do they end up having to take somebody on their side who is like the administrator of the program that kind of organizes and runs it to make sure that the information flow is accurate? So do you have somebody on the ground that's almost like your your TeamWorks rep that really knows the product and makes it work?
0: Well, so I think oftentimes when we're implementing, there's somebody that will be point on their end. But what it's really about is taking all of the people in that organization and everything that they used to store in silos, whether it was on paper in a desk or an Excel sheet or an online Google sheet and changing their behavior to say everything goes in Teamworks now. Yeah, Um, It's about digital transformation. It's about changing the way they do business. And You know, we come in and we lead them through that transition period. But when they come out the other side, Teamworks is just a way of doing business. And usually what ends up happening is they need less people to coordinate the exchange of information than they did before. Right. So where they maybe every team had secretaries and administrative assistants whose job was just to shuffle information around. Mm-hmm. Um, the need for that type of a role goes down when you implement a system like TeamWorks.
1: It's so cool. Okay. So in its current iteration, over a hundred pro teams are utilizing the platform, 2000 D one collegiate teams, collegiate championships, including March madness, which we're in the throes of right now. Yes. My bracket is totally ruined. National teams are more are utilizing the TeamWorks platform, but I like this kind of beginning story. I like those journeys. That's I'm a story guy, you know, um, Why did you set out to solve this problem? And I know that you're attached to it, but hear me out. So many people, when faced, there's been thousands of student athletes that came before you that dealt with the same problems you did. So many people see these problems, complain about them, blame them on the system, get frustrated by them. You set out to fix the problem, which is something I really, really admire. What was it inside of you? What made you say, like, I think I can do something here?
0: I think it was, first, it was just... A confluence of my interests, right? So, obviously, I was an athlete who was experiencing the problem and had at least some understanding of why that problem existed, um, given my role in the program. I was also, you know, really interested in technology and software. uh, And I was also really interested in running businesses. I, you know, I'd been experimenting with entrepreneurism since I was in you know, high school and junior high selling Christmas trees and lemonade stands. And I mean, I was going to follow I, up I, and ask
1: you what you were doing, but you did it. You, yeah. you lemonade stand and Christmas trees. I get it. Yep.
0: And I had other, I mean, I had businesses in college um, that were very successful. Um, actually, Stephen Galanis, who's the founder of Cameo. Um, he and I, we, we grew up in the same neighborhood in Glenville, Illinois. We both went wow. to Duke. We started a business at Duke together. Um, it was a marketing business where we would help bars and restaurants Um, basically strategize how could they get college students to come and what are, you know, different promotions that they could run, et cetera. Uh, And that was a very successful business um, in college that I was doing while I was playing and um, with Steve. And, you know, so I kind of already was playing around with business. I was playing around with software. I had a good understanding of this problem. And um, I also, you know, my family's culture is one of being entrepreneurial. My father's uh, been a very successful entrepreneur in his own right. Um, my grandparents owned, uh, I mean, we're Greek. So the stereotype is true. We had not one, but two Greek diners, uh, in my family history. And so, you know, the, it was kind of already wired up in my family that, you know, if, if there's a problem that a lot of people have, you can build a business solving it. And so that was, you know, I think it was the confluence of those things where I felt like I could solve the problem. And, you know, then it was just a matter of getting started on building a product and seeing if, uh, if it
1: worked. It's fascinating. I do think it's a mentality. I think that's interesting because every entrepreneur that I've ever spoken to and on this show or in other parts of my life, there is this undying believability. Like it is just this this belief system inside of them that says, I can fix this. I can do this. And there's this fearlessness that just drives them towards it. And I just, I find that fascinating because I don't think enough people have that kind of self-confidence or motivation to take on a problem and actually do something with it. So kudos for that. So again, it's one thing to identify a problem. It's another thing to come up with an idea to fix it. It's a whole nother thing to actually execute it well. As you look back, what were those key moments that took Teamworks from good idea to real business with staying power?
0: I think the... You know when we built the first version of the product you know we had a lot of different features and like a lot of startups or a lot of early when you're searching for product market fit you're kind of taking a shotgun approach and you're Hmm. lucky if like just just one little bead hits the target and i think the the piece that really hit for us uh back in 2004 2005 was we had built the ability to send out mass text messages through the app. And again, this is before the iPhone. This is like, you know, at best, you maybe had like a BlackBerry. And the ability in 2004 to click a mouse and send a text message out to 140 people simultaneously was mind-blowing, right? It's huge, yeah. Like we can turn this program on a dime, right? And just getting that feature meant that there was, you know, at least five people on our football team, you know, maybe head trainer, head strength coach, head of athletic medicine that we're logging in every day. And once you get somebody logging in and using your system every single day, then you have a feedback loop where you can start working on, okay, well, what should we do? What would be interesting next? How can we expand this? Why aren't you using it more? Um, hey, this calendar that we built, why isn't anyone using it? What could we add to make that more functional? What does it need to integrate with? And so I think that was you know just getting enough right that we got people using the product. And then, you know, we spent a lot of the prevailing years, really from 2005 until 2010, getting product market fit, right, getting other teams on figuring out how do you make it extensible for not just other sports, but other campuses. And I think once you get product market fit, right, then you you start working on go to market, you know, how do we get good at consistently communicating the value that we can provide? Um, You know, how do we get good at navigating the sales and contracting process and things like that. And then you figure that out. and Then then you got to get good at teaching other people to do that and hiring and managing and all that. But it's just, you know, I, I think the most important thing, I think, they're you know, oftentimes I meet entrepreneurs and they have this idea for a product and they're like really focused on like, and we're going to market it this way. And this is how we're going to go to market. And It's like, oftentimes I find that entrepreneurs, they're worried about what I would call like derivative problems, like how we're going to market it that's a good problem to have. If you Mm -hmm. have a product that actually creates value, right? Like we, we got to focus on that first. Like if we don't have a product that creates value, who cares how great our marketing plan is because Mm -hmm. it's not doing anything for anyone. Right. So I think we did a good job of, of kind of necessarily focusing on things that were about six inches in front of our face early on, and then gradually kind of working on problems that were further and further out and taking kind of our, going from a tactical to more of a longer-term strategic focus.
1: It is cool that you you talk about it almost from a human behavior standpoint, too, where you have somebody adopting that initial product of being able to text message to a group. And once they start using it, then it becomes easier to get them, you know, it becomes a part of their daily life. It becomes something they bank on. So then retention and it and switching costs for them or whatever, but just even just retaining them and bringing in more more features, I think is, is fascinating study to focus on the product side first. Yeah,
0: you, you have to. Um, and, and like I said, it's all about getting a foothold with someone getting, yeah. you know, and, and then kind of examining that why, you know, asking why trying to discover why, and that just makes you, the more you understand why that part of the product worked the better you can get at predicting what you're going to build next or really building the next thing in a way that it's going to work as well. That's going to have the same impact that it's going to be better. And it's all about, I think, just getting better and better and better kind of predicting the reaction that your product uh, it is going to, to receive from the people you're trying to sell it to.
1: So as a young student athlete with an idea and getting out there into the marketplace, did you find that it was difficult to get to people that take you seriously or did the product speak for itself? You know, like was the, was the benefit so clear that it made it easier. Um, I, I wonder how that actually, how that actually played out.
0: So I'm kind of, I guess not answering the question you asked. I think I was too timid. I don't think I was aggressive enough. I wish I'd have been more bold. I think, you know, when I finally, when it finally clicked that it's like, I need to be more bold. I need to be more aggressive. What I found was, you have this magical time period, and I think it's you know pretty much up until you turn thirty, where everybody views you as this like clever little kid that's got a great idea, and they want to help you. You're just a kid; anyone will help you. You can you can reach out to the commissioner of some you know big time organization, and they'll give you ten minutes because they love what you're doing. But it's like the minute you turn thirty, you're just another guy hawking a product, right? <laughs> and, and you get stiff armed. And so my advice, my advice is to young entrepreneurs is like, take advantage of being a quote unquote kid in people's eyes, because they will help you try and endear yourself to them. Like at, you know, if I can get some cranky old football coach to think of me, like one of his players, I've got a chance to show them my product. And if I can show them my product, I know that they're going to fall in love with it. So it's like, how do I get the meeting? So I used to be like, yeah, I want to be taken seriously or I want to appear older. And it's like, no, like take advantage of that because people want to help you. And and I think if you're really smart, you learn to play on it. You know, it's the old, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. Like I learned instead of saying, Hey coach, can I sell you this product? Hey coach, you know, you're really smart. You've been in the industry for a long time. I'm just this kid who's working on it. Could I get 20 minutes of your time to look at this and give me some feedback? And by the yeah. end of the 20 minutes, they'd be like, well, I think this is great. And oh, by the way, like, could we use it? Could we have it? gosh, coach, I didn't, of course, you know, gee whiz, I guess we can sell it to you. You know, so I, I I think it's, um, it's all, it's one of those things that's kind of counterintuitive, but when, when you're young, you, you know, I think you feel like you want to be taken seriously, or I want to be perceived as an adult. And it's like, no, take advantage of the way you're perceived right now, because you're going to get more, people are going to be more willing to help you. And when they feel like you're, you're just beginning. Then that might, they that, with- Seriously,
1: that might be some of the greatest advice I ever shared on this podcast. I love that. It, that perspective of taking advantage of where you are in that moment, being present and where your feet are on the ground, like be that person. And I think that's really important. So as a business matures and grows, things change a lot. It's no longer you and a couple of friends and an engineer are trying to put something together. You have a hundred employees now. Um, what was that cha- transition like for you going from? visionary creator out there talking to coaches to now being the leader of an organization with people who rely on you to make smart decisions, to organize things, to have processes, to manage, like, what has that been like?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think in the, in the early days, you know, you're probably heavily, you know, you are heavily tactical, um, with, you know, maybe a tiny little bit of strategy mixed in there. Um, and today I'm, you know, I'm, very much strategy you know i don't get into the you know a lot of the ground level tactical things i'm not selling i'm not building i'm not servicing um you know what i'm really focused on is you know where is the organization pointed where is it directed is it resourced um and there's a transition i think that the hard part is the middle i found that you know the beginning where you're on the ground building selling servicing it's fun it's exciting um, what I'm doing today is, is fun and exciting for different reasons. I think the middle is a real hard part where, cause the, you know, the first thing that's hard about it is understanding where you are in the transition. You know, you're constantly evaluating what should I be doing, right? Like, should this still be my job? Should I still be taking service calls from people that have my cell phone number or we, you know, we've got CS reps. So should I be transitioning? You know, what's the right way to handle that? So I think it's number one, understanding where you are and what your job is when you're going through that transition can be hard. Um, And there's not really a right or wrong answer. Um, You just have to feel your way through it. And then I think number two, you know, it's learning the different skill sets. So learning how to how to hire middle managers, learning how to manage middle managers, train them. Um, You know, I, I think I've had to learn a lot how to be a coach. Um, you know, I think I was a, a decent player. Uh, I think I was, a, I think I'm like anybody, a, it's easy for me to be a strong critic, but it's really hard to build and develop people. And you got to get good at that. You got to learn how to give people room to fail, how to kind of, I think you, one of the things I've really had to learn how to do is how do you whisper ideas into somebody's ear and, and let it become theirs Um, I think that's really a superpower that great leaders have. Um, You know, they don't really tell anyone to do anything. They just kind of like they're a muse. They get they get everyone to to where they need to be. Um, But I yeah, I I think the the middle part is hard um, when you're going from being on the ground level to transitioning to kind of being a general just trying to call the shots and uh, and run the strategies. And, um, you know, I do think there's several phases, you know, when you're going from founders to maybe first 10 employees, 10 employees to 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 100. And then I'm sure there's several levels that I'll run smack head first into as we continue to go forward. But that's, um, yeah, it, 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 it's not a perfect science. Um, I think the best thing you can do, though, is just be aware that you are in transition and try and pay attention to it.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So what do you look for in people when you hire them? I think we all have kind of personality traits we gravitate towards or are almost our own styles. I worked, I I grew up on the East coast. I have this like kind of fast paced intensity to me. And then I went and lived in, worked in Seattle and it was very different, you know, it was a very different way of approaching things. It was a little slower pace. I think we all have kind of styles we gravitate towards. So when you're hiring or trying to build out the teamwork's brand and staff and culture, what is it you seek out? What is it that stands out to you when you're talking to people?
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, number one, I think we're, we're looking for people that are competitive. You know, I want people that care about the score, that want to win. You know, we're looking for people that are premium, that are high functioning. Um, you know, doesn't necessarily need mean we need everybody we hire needs to have, you know, been working in industry for 20 years, but we we need to see that they have a really high ceiling to achieve you know, that there's a lot that they can bring. Are they going to make the organization better? Are they going to push the team around them? I think, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about is how do we make each hire better than the last? How are we constantly raising the bar with each hire? Humility is a big one for our organization, you know, and it's, you know, it can be, you know, when I say humility and we talk about people that are competitive, that are high functioning, we're looking for people that are confident, not arrogant. And I think there's, that's an important distinction. You know, people that are confident they've done the work. They know they're going to win because they've done the work. People that are arrogant just think they're supposed to win. Right. I think another one that we look for is strong attention to detail, right? Folks that see nuance, um, folks that are bothered when details are out of place, um, you know you know, interview tactic, leave a piece of paper on the floor where they're going to sit in the waiting room and see if they pick up the piece of paper. Does it bother them that there's a scrap of paper sitting in front of them? Like, are they going to, you know, they can't wait. They're not going to leave it for somebody else to take care of. They got to pick that thing up and throw it out. I think at the stage that we're at, um, and really in any stage of a startup, but particularly where we're at, we're looking for folks that are obviously problem solvers, but really system builders. So not just folks that are, you know, folk, they might pick up that piece of paper, but then they might say, well, how is it that that piece of paper got left here? And do we need to have a vacuuming schedule that happens every day? And who's going to carry that out so that we never have a piece of paper sitting in the lobby when somebody's waiting to interview again? And then I think the last one is just a bias towards action. We want people that, again, same thing, like they, they see a problem and they want to attack it. I mean, it's the question you asked me earlier, you know, why did I feel that I could solve the problem? I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I meditated on it so much as there's was like, there's a problem here. We got to fucking get after it. Let's go. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I love it. Like I'm I'm already ready to run through a wall for you. And I don't, I mean, we only met an hour ago. Uh, I love that mentality. I, I don't have to tell you this because I'm sure you've already seen it. But uh, as a Duke guy, uh, Kara Lawson, the women's basketball coach, she has a video on the difference between hard work and competitiveness. And if you haven't seen it, you should, because mm-hmm. I just think it's it's just a reminder to people that, just going out and putting in work isn't the same as being competitive. Anybody can build up a sweat. It's different to want to beat that other person across from you. and i I love that mentality personally. So I mean, it 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 very much gravitates with me. i and that the attitude I was laughing in my head a little bit because um we have three kids. They tend to make messes around here. And yet my wife and I, our house is like spotless. And we are constantly going through the, the process of like what problems need to be fixed with with them or how we're doing things. And it's just a funny way to look at it. I never thought of that from an interviewing type perspective of understanding somebody where their kind of drive mentality is. Um, when you analyze yourself, obviously you're very self-analytical. I get that vibe. And you go through these processes and meditate on things and have that kind of mentality where did this come from? Like, as you look back on your mentors, who has kind of set you up in this regard to be able to take on these challenges as they progress through your journey and just continue to do it to the best of your abilities? Who do you rely on? How have you learned these techniques? I mean, it's my, I think in in
0: terms of my maybe just my proclivity towards business and being competitive, it's you know my father. Um, you know, I mean, it's interesting just I, he's never in I can't ever remember at any point in my life, him telling me that I couldn't do something. It was always, you know, you you can do whatever you want. It might be harder for you than other people, right? Some people might have more natural gifts and things, you know, that make it easier for them to accomplish a given goal, but you can do whatever you want. Um, It's just a matter of how bad do you want it and how hard are you willing to work for it? Um, I take a lot from my father. I take a lot from my mother too. Um, You know, I think that particularly in terms of how I deal with people, you know, I think my, my mother's very, very empathetic and really good at understanding, I think, and reading people and, and also just, you know, making people feel cared for, um, which is important as a leader. You know, we talk about in our house um, with, with my kids, you know, you're you're a Maritas and that means you're a leader and being a leader means it's your job to take care of other people. Right. And so I, I think that's a, how you define being a leader is important as well. But, you know, I also read a lot. I mean, I try to, I, I try to study other leaders and, you know, just other people that have been high performing a book that I'm reading right now. It's a uh, book of five rings by uh, Miyamoto Musashi. Who's uh, he was one of the, I think he regarded as the greatest samurai in, in ancient uh, Japan. And it's a book that he wrote just about, you know, it's yeah, on the surface it's about swordsmanship and kind of, you know, being a samurai, but underneath it, it's, it's more just about how he lived his life. Um, and how he became, you know, the best in his field. Uh, there's also a lot of great strategy in there. But, you know, I, I we've also I've got a lot of great board members, um, folks on on my board that have been operators. So, you know, typically on a board, you're going to have a mix of folks that are kind of investors and folks that are operators. And The operators are folks that have been founders and CEOs. And I think having some of those folks, you know, folks like uh, Art Meaton and Lou Shipley and Kevin O'Connor to be able to to say, you know, how did you how did you handle this type of a situation when you were in my seat? Um, you know, I've got uh, Steve Wee, he's another gentleman who I worked for when I was at SciQuest. He was the CEO there, uh, another really successful business leader that I'll turn to oftentimes. And so I've got a lot of, you know, a short answer, I've got a lot of uh, great folks that are influencing me and, um, and I'm also trying to absorb as much as I can through other means as well. Um, you know, really... Some folks that I've really admired, Steve Jobs, uh, Elon Musk, uh, I think for both of them, I admire their courage in business, um, just their willingness to power forward with things that most, uh, I think in both cases, there were moments where there were very few people that believed in them or what they were doing and they knew it was right uh, and it was where they needed to go and they just weren't going to stop until they got the organization where it was supposed to be, which um, I take a lot from that.
1: Yeah. Those are some pretty inspirational people. So, fast forward to now, I listed off all earlier the impressive list of people and teams and, and clients that you guys have. Clearly, Teamworks has mar- massive market penetration, and the sky's really the limit. I know that's cliche, but it's true. We've only scratched the surface of the product itself. So, let's dig in a little bit deeper there. In some ways, and I don't mean this dismissively, it seems like a supercharged calendar app, but it's clearly more than that. You call it the athlete engagement platform. Why, in your view, do 72% of Power 5 athletic departments rely on a department wide? Why do 19 NFL teams swear by it? Why is TeamWorks the must-have tool of this era?
0: So, you know, I, I think sports, like every other industry, is entering into a time period where it is going to be rapidly disrupted and transformed by technology, it, you know sports is maybe you know as an industry i would say it's probably 10 to 15 years behind some other industries like medicine you know construction but it's catching up and you know the first step to transforming your organization is you know, getting that kind of core operating system in place. And that's really what Teamworks is for these organizations. It is a tool that they put in place. It's an operating system that begins by just connecting all the people in an organization. So when you put Teamworks in, what you're saying is, I want to have a digital hub for all of the people in our organization. And now increasingly through our work to expand the Teamworks platform, Teamworks is now connecting all of the technology within an organization. Uh, And in some cases we're providing the additional technology. So on top of that hub, we now offer, for example, tools that digitize everything that's happening in academic support. We have tools that digitize everything that's happening in travel planning and execution. Soon we're going to connect with the thousands of other technologies that these organizations are consuming. And, you know, long-term, I think both the organizations that are buying Teamworks today and what Teamworks will be in the future, it is the operating system um, that these organizations are going to run on into, the, into that digital future. It's going to be the connection between all the people and technology that they will have uh, now and,
1: and into the future. I do love that vision. It makes so much sense to say, you know, rather than having to go 20 different places, it's all right there. I know I can wake up in the morning and instead of checking my Twitter notifications, I can go right to that spot and know exactly what's happening for me today, what I need to do, where I need to be, what my responsibilities are, and have check-ins from all those people that are decision-makers and shareholders in your success. I just think is so powerful and so smart. Your playing days are over, but I still get that athlete vibe out of you. I still get that little growl of competitiveness, which I I mean, as a compliment, I hope you know that. Um, What traits do you think that you developed as a student athlete that still serve you well today?
0: You know, I think the most important thing is just toughness. Um, You know, life has lots of ups and downs um, and running a business has lots of ups and downs and you know, in sports, you have to overcome a lot of different things. You have to overcome sometimes being underestimated, not getting playing time. Sometimes, um, you have to come back from injury. Um, you know, when I was playing, I had, uh, nine orthopedic surgeries through high school and college. And every time, you know, you're getting strong, you're doing better and oh, just broke my wrist, just broke my ankle, just blew out my knee, just blew out my shoulder. It's a, you yeah. know, it's, it's the, uh, five step forward, four steps back. And, and I think, you know, just that experience prepares you for what you're going to go through running a business or being in life in general. Um, I think the, you know, again, the process of being put into a competitive organization and understanding what it takes to compete and win the idea of of preparation of practice, right. You know, a lot of success in business, people think, you know, great founders just show up and wing a pitch and get the deal. And, no great founders treat it just like a, you know, just like a football player. You know, we we practice six days a week. We train, you know, 10 hours a day so that we can be ready to play one 60 minute game on Saturday. Yeah. Right. And so like the, you know, I think just the idea that you've got to really prepare, really practice in order to succeed. I think there's so much about uh, an athletic experience that that transfers into business. And then again, also into life. I mean, you know, As you get older, people get sick, you have setbacks, things happen, and you just have to dust yourself off and keep going.
1: We talk a lot on this show because we are advising a lot of student athletes out there too, is like they talk about, and we, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, a lot of times they'll talk to me about what they don't have. You know, like I don't have this time to do this thing. So how am I ever going to get my career started? And it's like, well, lean into what you do have. You know, you do have attributes that other people don't, and you do have access that other people don't. The teamwork, the time the time management, the the competitiveness, all that fire, and then the just the ability to to go into a local business and do a 30 minute informational interview and to ask and to say like, Hey, I'm a student athlete. I'm performing over here. I'd love to get 10 minutes with you and talk, you know, and discuss your business and learn a little bit more that way. So take advantage of what you do have. And I think that ties in very well to what you were saying earlier about like be where your feet are and, and leverage what you do have in your twenties or as a student athlete, there are things that you can do that are different than other people. I might not be able to walk in and talk to the athletic director or go see how the entire business of college sports operates. You would be able to. So you leverage those things you have? Right? Yeah. And it's also how you look at your life.
0: You know, I, I think most people they want to, they want to spend, they want to feel like things happen to them. It's not their fault. You know, well, I didn't get this deal because that person's, you know, they're nuts. They don't get it. They're too hard to sell to. And something I say all the time to our companies we want everything to be our fault because if it's our fault, we're in control. So when something bad happens, don't tell me why that prospect is tough to sell to. Tell me why we weren't good enough to sell to them and how can we get better at it? And yes, they might be really hard to sell to, but I promise you there's the right combination of words and actions that would have succeeded in closing that deal. I like to be in control. And so I can't be in control of my of outcomes in my life if everything is somebody else's fault. And this is really fucking important because there's a lot of bullshit out there today. It's not your fault. It wasn't fair. You didn't have this. make it your fault. You want it to be your fault mm-hmm. because you have control and you have a chance to change it if it's your fault. So find a there as hard as it is, you know, it's hard to feel. Nobody wants to feel like they're responsible for the things that aren't. Good or what the way they want them to be in their life. And so the natural proclivity is to say, well, it's not my fault. I don't want to be responsible for that. But if you step into that discomfort of everything's my fault, I own my life outcomes and I will always own my life outcomes. You have a chance to change it.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. It's the message we have with our kids all the time. It's a message we have throughout our organization as well. I echo your sentiment. I couldn't add anything to it because you said it perfectly. So I'm just going to move on to the next topic because seriously, you nailed it. Can't add anything. Thanks. Uh, 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs are former athletes. 94% of C-level female executives are former athletes. 72% of U.S. presidents over the last 100 years are former athletes. Why does being an athlete directly translate to career success? Obviously, you have an affinity for athletes, you believe in what they stand for and the difference that is they've made throughout life and and history, but why? Let's break this down a little bit.
0: Well, you know, I, I think first and foremost, it's the experience of, of being an athlete. You know, you you first, you have to persevere. You have to deal with setbacks. You know, it makes you, um, again, I think it makes you a person that is more prepared um, to compete, but also I think, you you know, you're getting a, the experience of being an athlete teaches you what it means to be on a team, teaches you what it means to lead, to support one another, to set aggressive goals and try and hit them, to go, you know, as a group, someplace that you didn't think you could go, and and all of those are things that translate not just to being successful in life, but also to being a successful leader. And I will say that I don't, you know, I don't think that athletics is the only um, institution that trains people to lead. We have a lot of institutions and experiences that can do the same thing, but, you know, there's a reason why every, you know, successful society going back throughout history, sport has always been a part of that society structure because it trains leaders. It prepares people to step into that society. And again, not just as athletes, but as high school principals, police Mm -hmm. chiefs, fire department chiefs, you know, to lead that organization. And so I, you know, I just think that the, the experience of being an athlete gives you all, you know, if you were to write down all the skills that a good leader needs, you're going to see that folks in athletics, they're they're practicing those things every single day.
1: Yeah. I love what you brought up earlier too, about just dealing with injuries and setbacks, right? I mean, you train so hard and you face disappointment because you get hurt and you can't be out there. That's life. Like that's actually what happens in life and in business. You, you fail, you fall down And you have to determine, am I going to get back up and am I going to push or am I going to weep in sorrow and cry, cry myself to sleep at night? And I do think like that mentality of athletes, like I had a serious injury in high school and it was hard for me to come back from it. But I learned how to come back from things after that, that becomes forced into your brain, that becomes something, becomes an attribute that you can repeat again. And that's what you face in athletics. You lose, you lose sometimes you fail sometimes and that's okay. And that's good. And that's life. And, and sometimes
0: bad things that are unfair just happen. Yep. And you just got to move past
1: them. Yep. Okay, let's discuss name, image, and likeness. I think this is one of the most important things happening in sports right now and into our future. As an athlete empowerment brand, this has to be right up your alley. Um, I think it's one of the biggest stories in sports. I think it's a long time coming. How do you think this legislation and competitive mind shifts kind of will change the sports world moving forward? And I would also add in there, I want you to at least consider this too. What are the potential downsides?
0: Yeah, so... How does it change sports? I mean, I, I, I think, first off, I think name, image, and likeness is, all it is, is it, it's a rebalancing of an equation that has been unbalanced for a long time. So if we think about oh, yeah. just the, co- the core of, of elite athletics as a business, all value creation originates with the performance of the athlete. So I always give the analogy of, you know, people don't go to an Alabama football game to watch Nick Saban call plays they go to watch his athletes run those plays, Mm -hmm. right? They want to see the athlete perform. And so as the athlete performs, they create value. And that value gets turned into cash by brands, media, and fans. And that cash today flows back into leagues and conferences, clubs, and universities. And some of it comes back to the athletes in in the form, you know, at the professional level, in the form of salaries, and in college in the form of um, scholarships and other benefits that they receive. Now, I think as that value has been you know, further monetized, the deal for the athlete has stayed the same. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it has grown, but it has not grown in terms of what the athlete gets as much relative to what other participants, coaches, and ADs. And a lot of that, that's not because... I, you know, As much as people like to think there's malice, I don't think there's malice. I just think that the way the system was structured it was easier for more of that, that kind of monetary value to go to coaches and ADs and other staff that operate in a free market system than it was for college athletes who really operate in kind of a system of socialism where benefits have to get approved at a national level. It's the mm-hmm. same for everyone and so on and so forth. And so, you know, if you dump money on top of that, and on the one side you have a free market system and the other side you have this kind of very bureaucratic socialist system, the money's going to flow into the free markets faster. And that's why I think you've seen coaches and administrators' salaries go up faster. So what I think this is doing is it's allowing for that equation to balance itself and more of that monetary value um, to go to the athletes. Um, I also think this is just a continuation of a trend of athlete empowerment, right? Again, the athlete as the source of value creation is the most important person involved in this industry. I'm period like, right. Like you know, stop. Yep.
1: That's it. Full
0: Stop. That's it. Without the athletes, there's no industry. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're in the real estate industry and you take the most important part out, if you remove the real estate, it doesn't matter (laughs) if the brokers and everyone else, like the real estate's the show and the athletes are the most important, you know, actors. And so, you know, I think the difference is is that the athletes have been this kind of disconnected, distributed base of power. So, individual athletes may not have as much power as individual coaches or administrators. But now we live in a digital age of social media, where athletes can more easily band together, group together, digitally organize. And I think again, what we're seeing is that the athletes are, you know, gradually the industry is giving more agency and more control to the athletes because again. In the aggregate, the athletes have more power than anyone else. They're just now becoming aware of it. So that's why these changes, I think it's you know it's it's kind of a, a structural and economic rebalancing of something that's been out of balance, not forever, but maybe for the last 15, 20 years as revenues have really gone up. I think it's a good thing. Yes, it's scary for a lot of people and, and it's changed, but you know, I'm confident we're going to navigate this. There's a lot of smart people that are working on it. Yes, it'll be bumpy, but I think it, the industry is going to be better for it on the other side. You know, you, you asked about what are some potential negatives. I think with anything, you know, there's there's risk. I think there's risk that it, it's overly complicated and it doesn't succeed in rebalancing that financial equation. Um, I also think there's risk that it's not properly regulated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Sharks. everyone... There's sharks. And you know, the truth is, like again, I I I we work with people at the NCAA. We work with people at every conference. We work with these schools. There's no malice. I think there's this big public persona that there's this their public perception that there's this grand conspiracy to suppress athletes from making money. And that's not the case. I think what they're really trying to do is figure out how do we keep all these people that actually do want to take advantage of the athletes, the the street, the street brokers and Mm -hmm. the agent and people that, that have, you know, even sports betters, people that want to try and manipulate outcomes of these events. How do we have enough regulation to keep those people out, but at the same time, have enough freedom for the athletes to really get the full benefit of what this could provide to them financially and and professionally. That's a tough question to answer. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I do think that, you know, some things are going to radically change but i you know my hope is that we can uh, all the different parties can come together and have a really vigorous and respectful argument throw it all in the rock tumbler so to speak and mm-hmm. and let's find a good starting point and then let's give each other some grace as we navigate the first few years of this and really get it you know because if we're lucky if we're lucky as an industry we'll get it maybe 50 60% right first out the shoot and we're going right. to have to adjust and you know, so, I, you know, that's kind of what I think about it. You know, I worry that athletes are that are thinking about where they go to school are maybe overestimating right now what the monetary benefits are going to be. And, and okay. I, you know, I would hope that they would not pick a school because I think I'm going to make an extra 15 grand a year while I'm there and pick a school mm-hmm. because that place is going to be the best for my personal development in all areas of my life, athletically, academically and professionally. I worry that there may be a little bit of an over index uh, related to NIL right now. And I, you know, you know, we'll, we'll see. I personally, I, I'm somebody that gets excited by change. I'm excited that yes, it's going to be scary, but come on, let's fucking go. This is going to be fun. You know, I'm
1: excited too. I keep looking at it too. And maybe this is the naive side of me, but I would think the smaller sports programs are going to benefit this increasingly. Because if you're a wrestler at Iowa or you're a water polo player at, at USC, and now by getting out there and doing things through social and showing behind the scenes and doing fun things, you can build your own brand. So you're 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 positively there's a re- reason for you to do these things even more so than just I'm, I'm building up my following. Well, you're in turn also building up your program. You're getting more eyeballs on your team, your program, your sport. Like, I just think there's a great potential in there to help to bring up some of these smaller programs, especially now that have been really damaged by coronavirus and maybe don't have as much funding through the athletic departments to be able to kind of balance in that regard too and draw some more eyeballs and some personalities to softball and to water polo or whatever other sports, I think could be a really powerful, not talked about enough, unintentional consequence. It's a good one. You know, I hope
0: I, you know, if I can make a bold prediction, I think over the next five, over the next five years, I think that these changes in NIL are going to accelerate viewership fandom and revenue in what we would today call non-revenue sports. I think it's going to be a net positive Mm -hmm. for the sports that, you know, aren't on TV every single day. And I think we're going to see more more young men and women in engaging in those sports. And, and you know, as we said, learning all the wonderful lessons that you get from participating in sport. I hope that the net result is that more people want to be athletes. And I think that's going to be the case.
1: Yeah, they're going to see the stardom of some soccer player and they're going to see all these different personalities. What do we always say? In football, so often, you don't get to see behind the helmet and the pads and everything else. So the players aren't always as humanized as you might get from the NBA or some other sports. This is a way for these athletes at all different levels to really become humans that we can attach ourselves to, build their brand, really start to understand their life and what happens behind it, and just generate that interest. I mean, like, I get fired up talking about it, too. I think it's, I think it's a really exciting thing to happen to sports in the years coming, and I, I just hope that it goes. Like you said, what happens, unfortunately, I think so often in our world is something comes out of the gates— and if it's not perfect everybody just hammers it right they're going to they're going to it's going to be trending on twitter on um, all these different mistakes there's going to be pictures there's going to be arguments let's just breathe and let this kind of f- start to f- find its footing and flourish and see where we are right
0: yeah i think that there's going to be so much more good than bad that comes from this and and you know it's one of those things where we just got to jump in and yeah. and like i said hopefully everybody involved like let's just give each other some grace it's going to yep. be tough but it's something we need to do And let's, let's plan on this. Let's not stop working until we get it right.
1: Agreed. Well, you and I signed off on it at least. So, okay, we'll finish (laughs) up with this. I've taken enough of your time. I'm so appreciative. We've learned a lot about Teamworks and about you. It's very cool. I know our audience is going to eat it up. You are CEO, very important company, but you are also a former offensive lineman do you ever like during lunch break just want to like rip off the shirt and go tackle a sled or something? Like, do you have like this still desire to get out there and yeah. like maul something, hit the punching bag, something like you got to still have it, right? A hundred percent. And forget <laughs> the sled.
0: I want to go maul another large human being. <laughs> I, and, I was going to say that, never, but
1: I didn't want to offend. Yeah, girl, right. You
0: never stop wanting. I mean, I, you know, you can take the barbarian out of the, <laughs> out of the locker room, but you can't, you know, whatever it may be. But like, I, no, I mean, I, Gosh, I mean, talk about like, if you have a bad day, it'd be great to go throw the pads on and, and just go slam into somebody. hit
1: somebody. I, I would, yeah.
0: I will say, I think that if I were to go do football practice today, I would probably be in the hospital for a month after Things that, would break. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Ligaments and tendons and bones and everything would just kind of snap, crackle, pop. Uh, Zach, awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. This was really insightful. And like I said, I'm, I'm fired up, ready to go.
0: Brian, thanks
1: so much for having me. Well, that should do it for 2021. I think that was a success. 41 guests on the podcast this show. I've already talked to our team. We're already planning a lot of things for 2022. Our goal is to hit closer to 50 guests this year. So really bringing in new guests every week. Not taking a break, not doing a lot of repeats, new content all the time. And that's hard to do, bringing in new guests every week, but we're working hard at it because we want to serve you. And we really enjoy being able to tell and engage in these stories, meet people like Zach, meet people like Michelle Andres, meet people and share the stories of Scott O'Neill and so many others. So thank you for being a part of this journey with us. If you have suggestions, if you have areas you want us to get better, if you have ideas for guests or areas we should cover, email me, hit me up on LinkedIn, DM us on Twitter. You guys are a part of this, all of you. So if you want to contribute to the direction we're headed, the conversations we're having, Let's talk about it. Reach out. I appreciate every one of you. Congratulations on getting through 2021 and let's kick some ass in 2022.